Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints, Episode 20, Among the Ruins. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, to honor the recent passing of Pope Benedict XVI, we'll be talking about a pair of saints, twins in fact, who found peace in a war-torn world and shaped Christian life forever after. Saints Benedict and Scholastica, co-founders of the Western monastic tradition. Almost everything we know about Benedict and Scholastica comes to us from another saint who lived not long after their deaths, Saint Gregory the Great one of the most important popes in history, and one of the most prolific authors of the early Middle Ages. If you'd like to hear more about him, you can go back and listen to episode 12. Around the end of the 6th century, Gregory wrote his famous Dialogues, a collection of works about saints from his own native Italy, with a second volume covering Benedict and Scholastica. While this single source may not seem like much to go on, Gregory based his work on interviews with the first Benedictine monks, the followers of St. Benedict himself. So his account is full of first-hand stories told by those who had actually known the great saints and his holy sister in life. Benedict and Scholastica were born in the year 480, in the Umbrian town of Norcia, not far from Rome herself. You may recall from episode 14 that St. Rita was also from this region, almost a thousand years later. The twins belonged to a family of Roman nobles, known as patricians. But the life of a Roman patrician at the end of the 5th century was not exactly a life of ease. Only four years before their birth, the last emperor of Rome in the West, a boy named Romulus Augustulus, had been deposed by a barbarian mercenary named Odoacer, who reigned as Duke of Italy until he was overthrown by another barbarian chief named Theodoric, king of the Eastern Goths. Goths, by the way, were a Germanic tribe from the Dark Ages not an edgy fad from the 2000s. Theodoric the Great, as that barbarian king is now known, conquered Rome when Scholastica and Benedict were teenagers, and set up a barbarian kingdom of Italy that would in turn be reconquered by the Eastern Roman, or Byzantine Empire, when the twins were in their 50s. And the Byzantines, in their own turn, would be driven out by yet another barbarian tribe, a pagan warband known as the Lombards, who gave their name to Lombardy in northern Italy, only a couple decades after the twins died. Suffice to say, Benedict and Scholastica lived through one of the most chaotic eras in the history of the West, the period we now know as the Fall of Rome. In recent decades, it's become fashionable, you might even say politically correct, 
to downplay the fall of Rome in academic circles. Modern historians, eager to prove that all cultures are equally valid, that there's no such thing as civilization worth defending from barbarism, and that mass migrations of people can only benefit human progress. Such historians often bristle at the brutal imagery of a dark age in which Rome fell. They prefer to speak of the transformation of the Roman world, the migration period, the world of late antiquity. The so-called barbarians were misunderstood by the arrogant Romans, who failed to welcome them, and probably deserved what they got. Of course, there is a grain of truth in this story. The Germanic barbarians weren't animals. They had a culture, replete with magnificent artwork and epic storytelling. And some parts of the Western Roman Empire had an easier time adjusting to their new foreign masters than others. But ultimately, whatever silver linings we may wish to find in the fall of Rome, we can't escape the fact that all the transformations, migrations, and cross-cultural exchanges of this era took place against a backdrop of rampant violence. The sacking of cities, the slaughter of armies, the shattering of infrastructure that made decent life possible for millions. Little wonder, then, that archaeologists like Brian Ward Perkins have noted a drastic decline in living standards for ordinary people across the Western Roman world in the 6th century. The barbarians who now ruled the former empire simply didn't know how to keep the old civilization going. We're talking about really basic things. Paving the roads, building houses with tiled roofs so they don't leak when it rains, and floors so you don't have to stand on dirt in your own bedroom, making sturdy pots that can store food and drink for trade across long distances, maintaining the aqueducts, that carry water to cities, minting coins that the poor could afford to use for shopping, and even the ability to make glass. All these essential skills and more were lost when Rome fell. And the people who had to live through it all, people like Saints Benedict and Scholastica, had to watch the civilized worlds falling apart in real time. But life went on, even if it was sleazier, shabbier, and slummier with each passing year. As patrician boys had done for over a thousand years, the young Benedict was sent to Rome to study in one of the grammar schools that still taught the few who could afford it, under the new Gothic kingdom. He was not at all impressed by what he saw there. Just as the material lives of the poor were sinking into degradation, so too were the moral lives of the rich falling into decadence. 
there were still a few genuine scholars in Rome. Men like Boethius, often considered the first medieval philosopher. But they were few and far between. And they could easily end up on the wrong side of a barbarian warlord. Boethius was later tortured to death by King Theodoric, for reasons that still aren't entirely clear. It's likely that the Catholic Boethius was seen as a threat to Theodoric's Arianism, for the Goths adhered to that heresy which denied the divinity of Christ, making them barely Christian at all in the eyes of the Catholic faithful. But more common than philosophers and sages in 6th century Rome were playboys and sycophants, young men living lives of hedonism while their civilization collapsed around them. If this sounds vaguely familiar today, well, I won't comment on that. By the time Benedict had reached his early 20s, he had seen more than enough of the corpse that was Rome. He left the city, never to return, and made his way into the wilderness of the Monte Simbruini, the foothills of the Apennine Mountains, about 40 miles east of Rome. There he could follow his true passion, the service of God. Joining a group of like-minded men near the modern town of Affile, Benedict hoped to find tranquility away from the chaos of Roman life. It worked for a while, but then his powers began to show. Yes, I know it sounds a bit like a superhero story. One day, as Benedict was living in the hills, a servant accidentally broke a piece of farm equipment, which was no small problem in an age when everything was breaking down and hardly anyone knew how to fix it. Benedict was able to mend the machine through divine intervention, and word soon spread across the surrounding area of the miracle worker who had come from Rome. That was not at all the life he had been looking for. He wanted peace and quiet to devote himself to prayer, not fame and the attention of crowds. So he parted ways with his early companions, and left Affile for an even more remote valley in the mountains. There, among the ruins of the mad emperor Nero's villa, which you can still see today, Benedict met an old hermit named Romanus, who offered him food, clothing, and shelter in a cave above the river Anienne. Romanus proved a caring mentor to the young Benedict, paying him regular visits and helping him get used to the lonely life of a hermit. This is a running theme in the lives of hermits. Even though they seek solitude, they're never completely isolated. Everyone, even great saints dedicated to prayer and reflection, needs someone to talk to now and then. That's why, from the very beginning of the Christian tradition of hermitage in 3rd century Egypt, men and women living apart from the worlds have always banded together with others of a similar mind. There have been communities of monks and nuns ever since the days of those desert fathers and desert mothers 
who fled the noise of the city to seek God in the silence of the wild. Benedict did not invent the concept of the monastery, but as we'll see, he made it into the institution that we now know today. After three years of living as a hermit in that cave, Benedict was approached by a group of monks who had heard of his great holiness. These men asked him to become their abbots, a request which Benedict was naturally slow to accept. According to Gregory, Benedict could see that their manners were different from his, and thus they would never agree together. In other words, they did not seem to be cut for the same kind of ascetic life that he himself was pursuing, and he didn't think that imposing his personal standards of discipline upon their group would lead to any good. He soon turned out to be right. The monks apparently found Benedict's way of life so foreign that they even tried to poison him. Seeing that he couldn't do them much good, Benedict went back to his cave. But he couldn't escape from the outside world. Despite the bad starts, word of his personal sanctity and miraculous powers continued to spread, and pilgrims began flocking to the region to study under his guidance. Eventually, so many would-be students had arrived at his cave that he had to accept their pleas for his leadership. To keep things manageable, he divided these newcomers into twelve groups, each with twelve monks and a superior answering directly to him as abbots. He also took on a few disciples of his own, men he believed would benefit from his direct instruction. Without being able to read the saint's mind, I think Benedict had finally realized that God did not want him to live alone for the rest of his days. A man of his holiness may have preferred silence and solitude, but the rest of the world desperately needed what he had to teach. And so, in a cave of the Monte Simbroini, the Benedictine Order was born. What set Benedict's community apart from others that had come before it was its distinctive rule, a clear code of conduct that governed the lives of its monks, ordering them toward communal living, obedience to their superiors, a strong work ethic, and a routine of daily prayer based on the Psalms, from which would later evolve the Liturgy of the Hours. I'll talk more about the rule of St. Benedict toward the end of this episode, but for now it's worth noting that the rule was written not for priests, but for laymen. Benedict himself never took holy orders, as surprising as that may be. His first companions were lay brothers, who wanted to live as best they could according to the gospel, rather than priests with a special purpose as monks would eventually become. Benedict and his brothers lived this way for several decades, drawing more and more followers to their community. But as their reputations spread, it also began to win them enemies. The worst of these was a priest named Florentius, who watched with envy as a group of mere laymen surpassed him in fame.
In time, his jealousy became quite literally poisonous. When feigning friendship, he sent the brothers a poisoned loaf of bread as a gift. Benedict saw through the ruse and gave the loaf to a crow he had been feeding every night at dinner, with instructions to carry it far off into the wild, where no one could find it. The crow did as the saint commanded, and the brothers were spared from poisoning. With his first plan foiled, Florentius tried a new trick. He had failed to poison the brothers in body, but perhaps he could poison them in soul. The envious priest hired seven women to dance naked in front of the Benedictine monastery, hoping to seduce these chaste men to sin. When Benedict saw what was happening, he decided enough was enough. The abbot packed up and led his brothers away from the valley to find a new home where they could live in peace. Florentius, for his parts, may have felt like he'd won a great victory, but Gregory tells us he met a grisly end soon afterward, when the roof of his house collapsed, crushing him. Benedict was greatly saddened by the news, and forbade his brothers from taking joy in it. Whatever their feelings, they had greater concerns now, for it was time to search for a new home. After wandering through the mountains of central Italy, the brothers finally settled on a hill not far from Capua, the hill of Monte Cassino, where they would found one of the most famous monasteries in history. Monte Cassino may have seemed a strange choice at first glance. It was steeped in history, pagan history, as the site of an old temple to Apollo. The temple itself had been abandoned long before, but peasants from the surrounding region still made their way to the mountain to leave offerings and worship idols. This was not unusual for the time. While Italy had been nominally Christian for several centuries by Benedict's day, the new faith had often struggled to replace the old outside of the cities. The further you moved from civilization, the more likely you were to find people who still clung to the old Roman gods. That's actually where the word pagan comes from. It has the same origin as peasants, meaning someone who lives in the countryside. There were still pagans, or at the very least, poorly catechized Christians, living in the region of Monte Cassino when Benedict and his brothers arrived but the saint paid no mind to their heathen ways. Coming to the ruins of the temple, he smashed the remaining idols, burned down the sacred grove, and built chapels to the Christian saints in their place. This may seem an overly dramatic gesture to modern listeners, and as we've seen from the lives of other saints like Augustine of Canterbury and Francis Xavier, Christians have often taken a gentler approach to the conversion of sacred sites. But in Benedict's time and place, I don't think it's hard to see why he made such a bold move against the symbols of the old idolatry. Italy was in chaos, ruled by a barbarian heretic who could barely be called a Christian, and the Catholic faith, 
the faith that affirmed Jesus Christ as true God and true man, was in danger of being suppressed by the Goths. This was around the year 529, only half a decade after Boethius, the Catholic philosopher I mentioned earlier, had been tortured to death by the Arian king Theodoric. Benedict knew that if the true faith was to survive, it needed to make itself known in a vigorous, manly, uncompromising way. It was simply not the time for half-measures. The world needed to know that real Christianity was here to stay. So, yes, Benedict tore down the idols of the pagan past. But he built up something new and beautiful in their place. As the abbot passed into old age, Monte Cassino became a refuge for the poor, the needy, the hopeless. The same kinds of people who had once been sacrificing to false gods among the ruins of a long-dead religion. And there were many such souls in Italy as the cruel 6th century wore on. Only six years after the founding of Monte Cassino, the Eastern Roman, or Byzantine, Emperor Justinian launched a campaign to reconquer Italy from the Goths. If successful, this war might have rebuilt the Roman Empire in its ancient heartlands and restored civilization to Italy. But it was not to be. The war dragged on for 20 years, with the Romans recapturing much of the south while the Goths held out in the north before ending in a stalemate after both sides were devastated by bubonic plague. Then a new barbarian tribe, the pagan Lombards, invaded from over the Alps, wiped out the Goths, and put the Romans on the defensive once again. The Emperor's grand campaign had been for nothing. But in the meantime, thousands had been killed. Towns and fields had been burned. Infrastructure had been smashed and ordinary people were dying of plague and starvation. It fell to Benedict and his followers to care for these poor souls. I know it's a cliché to call their monastery a point of light in a darkening age, but that's exactly what it was. Now advanced in years, Benedict began to receive prophetic visions in addition to his miraculous powers. The most famous of these prophecies was when the Gothic king Totila, still an Arian like Theodoric before him, paid a visit to Monte Cassino. Gazing into the soul of the barbarian king, Benedict called him to repentance with a prediction that he had but ten years to live. Totila did indeed die ten years later, still an Arian heretic, but otherwise much reformed in his ways. The aged saint would soon pass from this world as well, but not before receiving one last miracle. Shortly before his death, Benedict came as close as one can in this life to receiving a vision of God himself. I'll read you Gregory's accounts. Quote, the man of God, Benedict, being diligent in watching, 
rose up early before the time of matins, his monks being yet at rest, and came to the window of his chamber, where he offered up his prayers to Almighty God. Standing there, all of a sudden in the dead of the nights, as he looked forth, he saw a light, which banished away the darkness of the nights, and glittered with such brightness that the light which did shine in the midst of darkness was far more clear than the light of the day. Upon this sight, a marvelous strange thing followed. For as he himself did afterward reports, the whole world, gathered as it were together under one beam of the sun, was presented before his eyes. And while the venerable father stood attentively beholding the brightness of that glittering light, he saw the soul of Germanus, bishop of Capua, in a fiery globe, to be carried up by angels into heaven. That's Saint Germanus, who had been not only Benedict's neighboring bishop, but also a key figure in reconciling the Eastern and Western churches during their first major schism. A story for another time. Benedict himself fell into a fever not long after receiving this vision. It lasted for six days, during which time he prayed with his brothers and received his last Holy Communion. Then, on the 21st of March, 547, he passed away, with his brothers holding both his hands. By now you may be wondering why I haven't mentioned Scholastica. The truth is that while this episode is meant to tell her story, as well as Benedict's, there simply isn't that much I can say. As I noted at the start of today's episode, most of what we know about these twins comes from Gregory, and Gregory tells us far more about Benedict than about Scholastica. Still, I've chosen to cover these saints in one episode, because they truly are the co-founders, for men and women respectively, of the Western monastic tradition. Without Benedict, monks would not be what they are. And the same could be said of nuns without Scholastica. So, what do we know of St. Benedict's sister? We know that she was in many ways his counterparts. Much of what we've said about him can probably be said about her as well. While we learn almost nothing about her upbringing, we can guess that she would have had a fairly typical childhood for a late Roman patrician girl. That means that she wouldn't have gone to school with her brother. That was only for boys. But she would have learned skills like reading and writing from a tutor at home, along with more refined subjects like music. It seems she never married, so she was likely called to a religious life from an early age, like her brother. When Benedict took up residence at Monte Cassino, Scholastica founded her own convents for religious women at nearby Plombariola under his guidance. These sisters would become the first Benedictine nuns. Throughout her life, Scholastica was devoted to her faith and to her brother, whom she visited every year 
in a house outside of Monte Cassino, as women were not allowed inside the monastery. A charming story from Gregory tells us a lot about their relationship. When they were both getting old, Scholastica paid Benedict her usual yearly visit. Sensing that this may be their last chance to see one another, she asked him to stay the night, rather than going back to the monastery, his usual custom, as he didn't like spending nights away from his brothers. Benedict was hesitant, but before he could return home, Scholastica prayed that he might be able to stay just this once. Her prayers were answered by a thunderstorm so intense that Benedict couldn't make it back to the monastery. They stayed up all night talking about God, before going back to their respective cloisters in the morning. Three days later, on the 10th of February, 543, Scholastica died, and Benedict watched her soul ascending to heaven. I like Gregory's comments at the end of this little tale. He says, She did more, who loved more. In other words, God answered her prayer even against what Benedict initially thought was best. It really was important for them to have that last bit of time together before she passed, as I'm sure Benedict, or anyone who's lost a loved one, could understand. Passing from this world to the next, Saints Benedict and Scholastica left a legacy that would shape the Christian world down to the present day. Chief among these was the rule of St. Benedict, which I mentioned previously. It's hard to overstate the significance of the rule in shaping the culture of medieval Christendom. From religious orders to lay fraternities to the lives of saints and kings, the rule gave a common ideal of Christian living to the faithful in later centuries. While there had been monks and nuns before the 6th century, it was only when Benedict and Scholastica provided this model of communal living that the monastic movements took off in the West. As the secular world crumbled around them, holy men and women strode boldly into the wilderness to start a new way of living among the ruins of the old. A life centered on dignified work beautiful prayer, and devotion to the good of one's brothers and sisters through obedience to an abbot or abbess. It's not a way of life that most are called to, and no doubt, partly for this reason, the church soon decided that the Benedictines should be ordained priests and consecrated nuns, rather than laymen and women. But even though it was and remains a path walked only by a few, the religious life, as taught by St. Benedict, enabled the survival of a whole civilization. That's a bold claim, but it's also the truth. If not for the disciplined monks and nuns of the early Middle Ages, countless works of arts, literature, and culture from the classical worlds would have been lost forever. The Benedictines truly were the keepers of the flame of Western civilization during the long nights after the fall of Rome. 
thanks to their efforts to preserve and expand upon the knowledge of the ancient worlds, to convert the heathen conquerors of Europe, and to show the barbarians an example of a well-ordered life, the Western worlds would be reborn in the High Middle Ages. It is not a stretch to say that Saints Benedict and Scholastica saved the civilization of Europe. These powerful twins have left other legacies, too. Scholastica, perhaps because of her name, but perhaps also because of the role her followers played in the renewal of Christian culture, would be venerated as the patroness of schools in the High Middle Ages. Benedict's cult, in turn, has grown in directions that the saint himself may not have foreseen. The St. Benedict Medal, for instance, is a popular sacramental, worn from the late Middle Ages onward for protection against poison, disease, and demonic influence. One side of the medallion depicts St. Benedict holding a cross and a book of his rule, flanked by a chalice and a crow, symbolizing his two victories over poisoning, familiar from our story. The other side shows a cross, covered and surrounded by the initials for numerous prayers, my favorite of which is a Latin exorcism. Crux sacra sit mihi lux, non draco sit mihi dux. Let the holy cross be my light, let not the worm be my lord. More recently, St. Benedict has also been invoked as a guide for Christians living in a decadent civilization. Orthodox author Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option is one example, arguing that Christians should retreat from the secular worlds and form intentional communities like those of the early Benedictines. I'm not personally a big fan of this idea. I don't believe that Christian laity with very few exceptions, are meant to live monastic lives cut off from the wider world. But there is certainly an important place for monks and nuns in the renewal of Christian culture. And even for those of us who live ordinary lives as laymen and laywomen, the rule of St. Benedict can point us to the everyday virtues, the little things, that bring us closer to God. The late Pope, Benedict XVI, noted of his ancient namesake, quotes, He offers useful guidelines, not only for monks, but for all who seek guidance on their journey toward God. For its moderation, humanity, and sober discernments between the essential and the secondary in spiritual life, his rule has retained its illuminating power even to today. Having recently emerged from a century that was deeply wounded by two world wars and the collapse of the great ideologies, now revealed as tragic utopias, Europe today is in search of its own identity. Of course, in order to create new and lasting unity, political, economic, and juridical instruments are important, but it is also necessary to awaken an ethical and spiritual renewal which draws on the Christian roots of the continents. Otherwise, a new Europe cannot be built. Today, in seeking true progress, 
Let us also listen to the rule of St. Benedict as a guiding light on our journey. The great monk is still a true master at whose school we can learn to become proficient in true humanism. End quote. I think it's only fitting that we close today's episode with a short reading from the rule itself. With our own community, here on this podcast, joining the countless others throughout history who have turned to St. Benedict for guidance. Here, then, is the advice the rule gives for an abbot, advice that anyone aspiring to leadership, whether in a monastery, a parish, a workplace, a school, a nation, or a family, would do well to follow. Quotes. An abbot should always be doing some good for his brethren, rather than to be presiding over them. He must, therefore, be learned in the law of God, that he may know whence to bring forth things new and old. He must be chaste, sober, and merciful, ever preferring mercy to justice, that he himself may obtain mercy. Let him hate sin and love the brethren. And even in his corrections, let him act with prudence and not go too far, lest while he seeks too eagerly to scrape off the rust, the vessel be broken. Let him keep his own frailty ever before his eyes, and remember that the bruised reed must not be broken. And by this we do not mean that he should suffer vices to grow up, but that prudently and with charity he should cut them off, in the way he shall see best for each, and let him strive rather to be loved than feared. Let him not be violent, nor over-anxious, nor exacting, nor obstinate, not jealous, nor prone to suspicion, or else he will never be at rest. In all his commands, whether spiritual or temporal, let him be prudent and considerate. In the works which he imposes, let him be discreet and moderate, bearing in mind the discretion of holy Jacob, when he said, If I cause my flocks to be overdriven, they will all perish in one day. Taking then such testimonies as are borne by these and the like words to discretion, the mother of virtues, let him so temper all things, that the strong may have something to strive after, and the weak may have nothing at which to take alarm. End quote. St. Benedict is commemorated on the 11th of July in the Catholic Church and the 14th of March in Eastern Orthodoxy, while St. Scholastica is remembered on the 10th of February in both traditions. They are both entrusted with many causes. Benedict is the patron of Europe, religious orders, students, farmers, spelunkers for his time in the cave, and protection against poison, disease, and demonic powers, among many other causes. Scholastica, as mentioned earlier, is the patroness of schools, books, tests, and nuns, along with storms, thanks to her prayer on the last night with her brother. If you'd like to learn more about these holy twins and deeper your own devotion to them, 
I've included links to prayers and other resources in the show notes. There you'll find links to our Patreon, where you can support the podcast and gain access to special bonus episodes available only for patrons. If you want to help us out in other ways, you can also leave a like or a review on whatever platform you use to find your podcasts and tell your friends and family about the show. May Pope Benedict XVI rest in peace, and may Saints Benedict and Scholastica come to our aid now and always for the greater glory of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless.